get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade. I kidnapped greatness and left no ransom. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibbony. Justin, how are you? I'm doing well, brother. I'm just coming off a pretty exciting weekend. I went up from to from Atlanta to Nashville, so I got to check out my uh, alma mater, Vanderbilt. Got to check out that game, and then got to preach on Sunday. So, I'm, oh, I'm, that's I'm fantastic! Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that uh, I saw some of the some of the pick some of the picks that looked like fun. I uh, I, I visited Charleston for the first time, and uh, okay. had a really great time out there. Was at the church. Uh, the Cathedral of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston and met just a ton of great people. A lot of folks interested in the Anne campaign. So uh, shout out to everyone who's uh, reached out since my event to check in to see how uh, they could get involved with the Anne campaign. Uh, we, we appreciate that. Yeah, and uh, if you want to do that, by the way, if anybody you know that's listening to this, if you want to get involved with Anne, obviously there's a process, but you can email us at engage andcampaign.org that's engageandcampaign.org that's right um and uh yeah so it was a great trip and i'm uh looking forward i'm gonna be at duke on tuesday night with uh far curlin and then uh i'll uh i'll be in new york next week at redeemer um and so looking forward to getting some traveling in before before the baby comes, man, because I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be uh, locking it down here for a little bit uh, uh, after uh, after she comes. So trying to trying to pack in what I can. As you should, man. I get that. <laughs> I definitely get that. It, it was crazy because this weekend what I didn't mention was that uh, Vanderbilt played Tennessee State and my wife is an alum of Tennessee State. So the good <laughs> news for all our uh, all of our church <laughs> politics fam. Uh, my family is still together and, and thriving <laughs> even after we beat Tennessee State. So that's, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> folks will be worried about that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I mean, it, you know, I, she's probably. I don't know how many times Tennessee State has has beaten Vanderbilt, uh, but I, am I? I don't know if I want to say that. So, some we need to cut this out. I don't want to get on. Uh, I don't want to insult uh, Tennessee State. <laughs> okay, I got you. <laughs> Although I'm all for it, by the way. I, was in, I, was, well, I, I know. I'm not worried about you, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we we have a lot to catch up on. Uh, our, our last episode, we were happy to bring, uh, uh, have uh, Dr. C.J. Rhodes on, who is uh, the Ann Campaign's public theologian in residence and uh, covered some important issues. Uh, then we, we previewed uh, that September was largely going to be about Kavanaugh and uh, that that became true in, uh, in in more ways than we could imagine. And so this episode, uh, we're, we're just going to walk through really the month uh, and especially sort of what's happened post, post-hearing. And uh, 
I, I think I, I just want to open up this episode by, by you know, saying we, we knew that this was going to be uh, uh, a political uh, fight, a process that touched on even before allegations came, even before uh, sort of everything that's transpired since the hearing. This was already going to be a very uh, conflict-driven, emotional fight because of the importance of this Supreme Court seat uh, and the the political and national import on an array of issues. Uh, Justin, we, we've talked about this. Uh, I've always uh, had a mix, uh, a mixture, especially in sort sort of with recent Supreme Court appointments, a mixture of kind of uh, both uh, obviously deep interest and care for the nomination process and who was getting put on the bench, but it was always mixed with a kind of ambivalence uh, because no matter what president is appointing a Supreme court justice, given the way that our uh, sort of political parties are set up, given the way that ideologies are set up, um, you just know that whoever gets on the bench is going to make some decisions that infuriate you and some that you think are spot on. And so I, I found it difficult whether it was Obama's nominees or Bush's nominees or, or certainly Trump's nominees uh, to, to, to feel too stridently about it because I feel like it's such a uh, impure, like mixed, mixed bag. Um, and, and so even before these allegations, it was, it was a uh, uh, really um, uh, brought a measure of ambivalence to it. Uh, and then after the hearing, these allegations came. At this point, Justin, I'll turn it over to, to you. Uh, what, what, would you be able to share with our listeners just in sort of, uh, obviously, we, we could just lay out what's happened, you know, over an hour and a half. But just sort of briefly share kind of where things stand uh, now and, you know, what's transpired over the last couple of weeks here. Yeah. So in brief, and I know a lot of you have been following this yourselves, um, really, I, you can't really talk about this and the bad blood that's surrounding all of this Kavanaugh stuff without going back to Merrick Garland. Right. Which was Obama's uh, nominee for the Supreme Court. So at the end of Obama's term, he nominated a man named Merrick Garland, which I think everybody agreed was qualified uh, as far as resume goes. Um, but the Republican Party did refuse to to, to give him a hearing. Uh, so a lot of people thought that was bad blood. Now, I will say that from a Republican point of view, they would point out that Joe Biden actually created that standard or, uh, or at least gave voice to it. Uh, the standard of, hey, this is in somebody's last term. The new president should actually uh, pick the, the next nominee. So wherever you stand on that, I don't think it really matters. I just want to give you guys the background. And that's kind of where the bad blood starts. Uh, and so obviously they, they've uh, Trump has already seated one uh, Supreme Court justice uh, this after uh, Kennedy uh, retires. Now he gets another chance. He chooses uh, Kavanaugh. Uh, Kavanaugh goes through the process. He's been through several uh, FBI, you know, investigations and they, they go all through your history and things of that nature. He goes through the hearing. Obviously, it's a tough hearing because so much is at stake. You know, a lot of people are worried about uh, Roe versus Wade and all these all this other stuff. And so this is something when it comes to uh, the left and the right, that is a very big deal. And it should be. I mean, nobody should take the Supreme Court 
uh, a Supreme Court justice seat lightly. But this has been, you know, the worst that I've probably seen. Um, um, and I wasn't as paying as much attention when it came to Clarence Thomas and things of those issues. But this one is is pretty serious. So go through the hearings and then all of a sudden um, it is leaked to the press that there is a lady who says that in high school, uh, Kavanaugh actually um, sexually assaulted her that they were at a party, a house party. They were 17 years old, or at least he was 17 years old. She gets pushed in the room, pushed on the bed. Um, someone lays on top of her, puts their hand over her mouth, um, doesn't get raped, but certainly sexual assault, sexually assaulted was the allegation. So these things come up. Um, they decide to have another hearing. This is what happened last week. There was another hearing where Dr. Ford, who was making the allegation, and Kavanaugh, had to testify before Congress. Um, they both testified. I think, you know, after Dr. Ford spoke, a lot of people felt that she had a credible, what she what she was saying was credible, that she came off as somebody who wasn't just making this up. Uh, then Kavanaugh gets up and very, in a very emotional tone, a very different posture than I think a lot of people expected, really kind of got up there in a combative, you know, kind of combative posture and you gave his side of the story. And I don't know how much you can blame someone if if we were to assume that he was innocent. I think most people would be somewhat upset um, about being um, someone saying that they sexually assaulted him if they're innocent. Um, so he he obviously had some issues with that. He He took it very seriously. I think people still question some of the comments that he made. He made some very partisan comments. Uh, saying that this was payback from the Clintons and a whole lot of stuff. I mean, truly lost his composure. Uh, some people say that's understandable. Some people say that disqualifies him. I'm really just trying to give you the background. Uh, so that happens. Uh, it looks like that the GOP is going to move forward with it. Uh, Jeff Flake, who is the senator from Arizona, uh, is the person that people are really watching because he could kind of go either way. Initially, he says he's going to vote for Kavanaugh after this hearing. And then as he's coming down the elevator, I guess, to leave the you know the Senate, the Senate or whatever, uh, he gets confronted by some women who really put some pressure on him. He decides to actually call for an FBI investigation. And so where we are now is they are going through the process of an FBI investigation. And that should end sometime this week with McConnell, who is the leader of the Senate, looking to uh, vote on Friday, but we'll have to see actually what comes of that investigation to really know what's going on. Um, and as you know, brother, where this, this Kavanaugh debacle has really consumed our discourse for, I guess, a month, if a few weeks at, at least. And, and I think for good reason, because if we look at it, it, it calls the question an issue or maybe a few issues that our society has failed to properly or adequately address. Um, we know that sexual assault and the women who have been affected by it deserve our attention. Uh, it deserves um, uh, they deserve an opportunity to heal. They deserve to be at the table to bring about real solutions. And there's no doubt in my mind about that. I do think it's unfortunate, though, Mike, Michael, that um, this case has somewhat been clouded and this issue has somewhat been clouded even to a small extent by political motives. I think the political aspects of this back and forth have not been helpful to getting real uh, to getting to the heart of the real issue. So to me, it starts off where you have President Trump, whose first statement about this issue is something like, you know, if these allegations were credible, she would have said something immediately. Yeah. Well, I think we can all agree that that was a ridiculous statement. You no, know, we can all agree that he is nowhere near qualified to render. Huh. 
such an opinion. Mm-hmm. And that is it was really below the office to say something like that. And he should have kept it to himself. I hope we can all agree on that. And so that was a bad start to this conversation, along with all the other stuff that was going on in the Senate. Then you also had a Democrat or two who used these specific allegations to fundraise, who actually sent an email out with these allegations as cover for for front for a fundraising effort, um, exploiting it to put money in their own coffers. And I think that was disgusting as well. Uh, We had senators on both sides during the hearing. Anybody who watched the hearing knows that they made a clown show out of the hearing. You had people posturing, political posturing, posturing for 2020, all this other stuff that we say we care about the issue, but we're bringing in our own interest into the conversation. Mm. That was disappointing. The one bright spot that I saw, and I'm very thankful for these senators, was uh, Senator Amy uh, Klobuchar, who is the senator from uh, Minnesota, She asked some very thoughtful questions and you could tell she was really trying to get to the heart of the issue. And listen to this. Even when uh, uh, Kavanaugh sort of snapped on her and I think he was wrong for that. He ended up apologizing. She didn't snap back. Yeah. She held her. She she kept her composure. She stayed professional. And I think we could learn so much from her response to him coming at her. He was clearly out of order. That's right. And She stayed calm. And did what was right for the hearing to make sure this was a hearing that is worthy of 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 the most important legislative body in the world. And she her did a good job. And her not, not to uh, her composure put in starker relief how out of order he was. Like if, yes, it exactly. if it would have just turned into a shouting match, then you get all kinds of equivalency going on. But the fact that she was dignified as she always is uh, made people look even even more strangely at Kavanaugh, like, what, like, what are you doing? Um, exactly. And I think there's a lesson, like you said, there's a lesson in that. that sometimes sometimes the most effective thing isn't to go off on somebody. <laughs> exactly. And we're so caught up this day and age. When somebody says something to us, we got to clap back. We got to say something more witty, something more insulting. And what she did was just calmly kind of let him get it out. And then she stayed, you know, she stayed in the same form which she came. And I, I think that was just... Uh, a real example of how things should go. You also got Jeff Flake. And uh, I, I know a lot of people on the on the right aren't happy with him. The people on the left may not be happy with him at the end of the day. Mm. But he did take a stand. He did push partisanship aside and say, you know what? We need this FBI investigation. I think it was the right move. Whether Kavanaugh gets in or not, mm. really the most important part is the integrity of the institution. And I think to some extent that FBI investigation helps us with that. I'd also like to point out Chris Coons, who who handled himself very well. He was about business. And really, we let's reward the senators who are about business when it comes to this issue, not the ones trying to posture, trying to get, uh, you know, everybody wants to have that clip that goes viral from what they said and how they told somebody off. I want to see people who are trying to get the job done because that's really where results come from. So shout out to those three senators, man. I think they did an, uh, an awesome job and I'm glad that there's an FBI investigation to this. We'll see how it comes out. Yeah. Uh, let's, we're going to do another segment on Kavanaugh. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. This is the church politics podcast. We're back with the church politics podcast. And uh, Justin, I, I, I appreciate the, a pr- pretty masterful overview of a chaotic couple of weeks that you you laid out. I, I want to affirm and uh, lift up a-, a few of the things you mentioned. But before doing that, I, I guess 
I just, uh, I was, uh, I was, I was uh, moved by Dr. Ford's testimony and the, the posture that she brought uh, to, to the hearing and what was a, 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 a difficult circumstance. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's easy to forget when, you know, in this age when everyone's a public figure, everyone's been training their whole life to, uh, it seems to be in front of cameras, uh, that, 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 that that's a, like a pretty strange thing <laughs> and, and th- that's not normal. And B, there are a lot of people who, um, uh, who have not been preparing their lives for, the kind of moment that Dr. Ford was in that uh, I don't think that she's someone. And I think you could see this just in the fact that she um, it it appears. And again, maybe the FBI investigation will, who knows what the FBI investigation will show, but based on everything we know, it seems pretty clear that Dr. Ford was doing everything that she could to keep herself out of the limelight uh, on this. And so um, I was moved by just her, her, her presence and the way that she carried herself. Um, and I'll, I'll, uh, it, it was, um, it, it, it was, it was heartbreaking. I, I, I saw that testimony and, um, uh, you know, obviously in, uh, in a court of law in a criminal process, sort of, uh, emotional, uh, persuasion does not suffice for, uh, criminal indictment but that's not what we're talking about here we're ta- we're talking about a uh, a woman who for who shared one of the most humiliating things that happened in her life according to her testimony uh and then was grilled by United States senators and a hired prosecutor for hours <laughs> about that experience <laughs> and um I-, I think the courage that she displayed was uh was 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 pretty incredible and also um also a, a reminder of the incredible courage that this country um too often unjustly demands of women uh and this culture demands of women and so um i, I think dr ford has been like for all the conversation about how messed up our politics is and it's messed up and for all the talk about how the confirmation process is not what it should be under Kavanaugh or under Merrick Garland or under uh, Bork, you know, um, uh, Dr. Ford's not to blame for that, but based on everything that we know, uh, Dr. Ford came forward with what she clearly believes uh, again, barring, Barring some kind of unfathomable uh, concoction, some unfathomable conspiracy theory, she came forward with information that she thought was relevant to someone who was up for a lifetime appointment, and so it, th- that was that was one of my main reactions from the hearing uh, regarding Kavanaugh's testimony. I um, I tend to lean towards the um, y- yes, we've never seen a Supreme Court justice act in quite that way though you know bork <laughs> had some interesting hearings and and clarence thomas uh when uh had had some uh fiery moments as well uh, but let's remember this was not kavanaugh's initial 
initial hearing, this this wasn't uh, he did the job interview, uh, you know, uh, several weeks ago. This was being called to the carpet, which if we're to believe his testimony was uh, being asked not just about sexual assault, but he says never occurred. He said 100 percent. He is certain this never happened. Uh, but having answered questions about his yearbook and his drinking habits and what kind of uh, adolescent boy he was, um, frankly, from, you know, um, as senators who uh, I don't think would like uh, and don't like when uh, that kind of introspection into their childhoods and their their adolescence. Uh, uh, and so uh, I, I'm a little more forgiving with some of the combative a tone he took, um, especially if if he's obviously if he's telling the truth. If he's not telling the truth, then it it shows a level of sort of sociopathy to um, uh, to, to to act that way and to put the country in such a such a such a situation. If you do in fact know know or even wonder if there might be. Uh, if there might be a chance that this is this is something that happened and and you don't remember it or um, there there may be a difference of opinion on exactly what happened um, and and so and th- those are kind of my reactions to the hearings. Then just the last thing I'd say, Justin, is uh, I, I do just want to that that Coons Flake moment. Uh, it's a, so uh, both Jeff Flake and Chris Coons have done some interviews jointly and separately since that uh, Friday hearing. So again, for the timeline, Thursday was the hearings with Dr. Ford and Kavanaugh, and then the Judiciary Committee met on Friday to vote on whether to advance Kavanaugh to a full floor vote uh, for the whole Senate, and the. Uh, and, and and so that's what we're talking about here. This Friday hearing, uh, Flake had Flake's office had issued a statement that morning saying that he supported Kavanaugh, that he was going to vote yes. Uh, but he says that he was personally his staff issued that statement. He personally was uncertain. Uh, Justin, you're exactly right to note um, he was confronted in an elevator by uh, some protesters and activists who. Um, had experienced uh, sexual abuse and assault themselves who, you know, in a pretty moving tension filled uh, sort of sort of scene demanded that Flake heard them. But but then there's also this really interesting thing that happened. And and the lesson for our politics is really profound here. Chris Coons got into his office that morning and received a speech from his chief of staff. And his chief of staff had watched the hearings uh, the, the day before and was similarly moved by Ford's testimony and was upset with um, the way that some voices were uh, uh, unduly questioning Dr. Ford and accusing her of lying and sort of all of this stuff. And Coons told a reporter, you know, that sh- uh, his chief of staff wrote a pretty strident speech and he looked at it and he he asked his chief of staff uh, t- he asked his chief of staff uh, is this for the history books and my caucus meaning meaning democrats or is this for my friend jeff flake and in that question holds so much uh 
of what we have lost in our politics and what people like Chris Coons are trying to hold on to. Now, Chris Coons and Jeff Flake disagree on 95% of policy issues, but they both have a passion for Africa. And so they, they've traveled to Africa several times over the last uh, couple of years. They've gone to, I believe, Zimbabwe together and have worked on legislation around Zimbabwe. Uh, and so Chris Coons said, Jeff Flake is a reasonable man. And I could either give a strident speech that tried to tried to uh, cast Republicans as as evil and all this stuff, and not get any progress, and Kavanaugh will be voted through, and sort of the moment will pass. Or I could try to convince and persuade uh, my friend Jeff Flake to do something different, and so. Jeff Flake is listening to Chris Coons give a speech that is vastly different from the one he was going to give just hours earlier. And Flake starts to think, well, my my friend Chris Coons seems to be making a pretty genuine plea here. And uh, uh, you could read uh, McKay Coppins reporting on this. I, I won't go through the whole the whole story, but basically Jeff Flake gets up, walks from the Republican side of sort of the podiums, the, uh, uh, the Republican side of, uh, of the seats and moves over to the Democratic side, taps Coons on the shoulder and asks Coons if they could meet privately. And for, uh, uh, they, they had long conversation, other senators jumped in, uh, and the, but the end of that was a coming to agreement between Flake and Coons, uh, that that there was a reasonable way to go about an FBI investigation that did not allow Democrats to play games uh, uh, forever. That a, t- a time limited investigation that gave the FBI the time they needed to get things done, um, and that's where we are now. And I just the the the, the main point I want to make is that without Coons choosing, like we were talking with Senator Klobuchar earlier, without Coons. Uh, choosing to do their their jo- his job to be about business, as Brother Justin said, without Coons deciding to be about business, and without Flake being open to the possibility that there were good faith actors on the other side, that this wasn't all a political game, that some people actually mean what they say, the FBI investigation would not be happening. Uh, Doctor Ford's testimony would not even be getting the dignity of having an FBI investigation and we'll see what this investigation comes up with. But we, uh, uh, if it comes up with something fruitful, either, uh, something that, um, uh, is, uh, uh, that, that alleviates, uh, uh, Kavanaugh of blame or that, uh, provides some additional evidence that this may have happened, uh, uh, we wouldn't have had that without Jeff Flake and Chris Coons uh, stepping towards one another rather than away. Uh, and for all of the bombast of those on the extremes, for all of the claims that the most strident people are the ones that get the work done, uh, I just want to be clear that in this scenario and in so many others in our politics, it is it is the people who are the most strident, the most passionate about their cause, um, they actually do a lot of talking, but don't get the job done. Uh, and so, kudos once again to Senator Coons. Kudos to Flake for for actually uh, for actually being open to the possibility of acting differently than uh, than uh, his his office had planned on in the morning, uh, and in a really dire 
uh, cloudy week uh, that was very heavy. Uh, this was one sort of bright spot that proved our politics isn't completely starved of uh, creative, positive, you know, imagination. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and we, we know rarely do we spend almost a whole episode on, on one issue. But since this has been going on, a lot of people have asked the uh, church politics host uh, how Christians should react to this matter. Mm. Um, what should we do? We, you know, w- w- which way should we go? And so I, I want to address that. Um, something I've been thoughtful about, prayerful about. Uh, I'm sure my answer isn't perfect. Uh, but here, here are some of my thoughts in this regard. The first thing is when it comes to issues like this that have such strong narratives behind them, we tend to try to dumb it down to easy answers. Mm. Uh, and in dumbing it down, we create demons and angels. And so one side is demons always, their whole life is about being a demon. The other side is just completely an angel and always right. First of all, it's never that, it's never quite that easy. Um, I think the first thing that Christians should be thinking about is if this is a hard issue, let it be a hard issue. Yeah. You don't have to dumb it down. So it's so easy. Oh, this is so obvious. Things aren't necessarily completely obvious Mm -hmm. in, in, in tough situations. If it's a hard situation, no matter what your narrative is, let it be a hard situation and let's work through it honestly, because otherwise we're just dealing with intellectual dishonesty and talking points and, you know, saying things that others around us want to hear, but not really getting to the heart of the issue. So that's one thing. Also for Christians, obviously justice is always, always important. What does justice look like in this particular issue? Um, we have to make sure as much as we can to do what we can to make sure that justice is served, whatever it entails in this case. So I think that Christians should be engaged, should be engaged in a real way. Um, but that but we cannot join the mob on either side. We cannot join the mob. And what that doesn't mean, because I know what some may be thinking, that doesn't mean that you can't passionately advocate for one side or the other. It doesn't mean that you can't act with righteous indignation and be on the front lines of this conversation, really letting the other side know what you believe and fighting hard uh, once you've been thoughtful about the issue. So that's not what I mean by don't join the mob. Uh, What it does mean, though, is that we have to be thoughtful throughout the process. Uh, We have to maintain a level of grace throughout the process, no matter how how mad we are. And what I know is that mobs are not thoughtful. Mobs are not gracious. Yeah. Uh, mobs are, are not about justice. Mobs are about vengeance. Mm. So just because you agree with somebody that's part of a mob doesn't mean that you can stand with them as part of the mob. Yeah. yeah OK. Yeah. Um, in many cases throughout human history, a mob has taken a worthy justice issue and actually create created injustice. Because it wasn't thoughtful and it wasn't gracious. So I would just keep that in mind. And that's for either side. Uh, And we need to keep in mind, too, that the best case scenario when it comes to sexual assault is to prevent these instances from happening. A mob only wants to deal with punishment. That's why a mob doesn't come up with solutions. Now, let me be very clear. Punishment is certainly a part of the process when you're talking about a crime this serious. 
punishment is definitely part of that process if somebody is is found guilty of something like this. But what we have to keep in mind is, so I don't want to lose that, but what we have to keep in mind is even after an assailant is punished, neither the woman nor society is made whole. Yeah. Prevention is always better and more important than punishment. And we have to admit that there are a lot of cultural issues at play here, whether it's power. Have we dealt with how power plays a part in in these assaults? Have we dealt with how gender plays a part in these assaults? Have we dealt with our cavalier attitude towards sex and alcohol? Yeah. If we treat this from just the perspective of punishment, and again, punishment is part of it. But if we just focus on the punishment, then we're doing a disservice to everyone involved because we're not doing enough to prevent it from happening the next time. And what I see from the mob on both sides is none, none of it is really about the prevention. It's just completely about the punishment. The punishment needs to come and people need can advocate for that, too. But at the end of the day, prevention is always more important. Uh, we need to look at how we view alcohol uh, on many college campuses today. We have 18 and 19 year olds that consume that can consume alcohol practically with no restrictions on campus. Hmm. Hardly any restrictions. Now, we think that's cute until something bad happens. And let me tell you, a good kid can temporarily turn into a monster when intoxicated. And when that happens, they have to pay the price for what they've done. But that doesn't mean that's who that person always was either. Mm. Uh, We cannot disconnect the issue of sexual assault from permissiveness in our society um, and alcohol in our society. And I want to be clear. These things never justify assault. Never. But we're not being realistic if we don't admit they play a role. So the, so what I want to see now, not only people being serious about the punishment, which they should be, but are we serious about the prevention? Do we just want to be a mob or do we want to be a civil society that's actually coming up with ways to keep young men and women out of these situations? And a lot of time what happens, our cultural narratives don't allow us to really deal with issues. I don't like, you know, the Christian sexual ethic. Therefore, I don't want to deal with restriction, you know, trying to restrict those things at all. Well, then maybe you don't want to solve the issue Mm. because if we don't consider that that might be an element in it, we have a problem. And so I'll just end by saying, don't let your narrative, your nice narrative that you and your friends like to repeat back and forth all the time. (laughs) Don't let it stop you from finding solutions. And I think we're uh, uh, we're in jeopardy of letting that happen with this very serious issue. Yeah. That's a good word, Justin. Uh, we're we're going to take our last break of this episode. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, pretty briefly about a substantive policy update uh, that happened just over the last 24, 48 hours. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back with the Church Politics Podcast, uh, and we're going to close uh, this episode with a, a, a Breaking news at the time that we're we're recording uh, this and a significant uh, kind of maybe October uh, surprise for President Trump uh, in that he has a bit of a trade win on his hands, similar to what we've discussed on this podcast about uh, his playing hardball with uh, in negotiations with the EU. President Trump has said some uh, pretty striking things in regards to uh, Canada and Mexico and the 
North American Free Trade Agreement that has been at the heart of uh, so much uh, disagreement in our politics uh, over the last 30 years almost. Um, uh, it, it was uh, played a major role, obviously, during the Clinton presidency. It was a NAFTA, uh, uh, which is the which is the North American Free Trade Agreement, was at the uh, it was a major point of contention uh, in the 2008 Democratic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And a lot of people would say that uh, sort of the Democrats becoming uh, more split on trade uh, actually opened up was part of what opened up uh, a Republican pathway to the working class. Um, it's something that Trump uh, really exploited in order to to win in 2016. And now, after months of strident rhetoric about NAFTA, uh, on Sunday night, uh, it was uh, announced that an agreement has been reached to revise NAFTA, uh, to rebrand it, um, with what most people are calling modest changes. But when we read these off, these aren't going to seem like a completely negligible uh, issues. Now, the deal has not been signed yet, but the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement uh, seems to be uh, near completion. It will be a victory that D- President Trump will be able to say he delivered on, something that uh, that he'll take to voters in the midterm elections. But let's focus on the policy first. And uh, uh, Justin, I'll, I want you to, I, I know that you pay attention to these issues really closely, but just as a as a quick overview, uh, again, we're talking about in the, in the scheme of the agreement, uh, relatively modest changes, uh, changes that uh, it, for Canada and Mexico, importantly, uh, allow them to be protected from U.S. auto tariffs uh, for the next 16 years, uh, which is a significant reprieve. And of course, auto tariffs was uh, one of those uh, sticks that that Trump was sort of using to to threaten uh, or or negotiate with uh, uh, Canada and Mexico. Uh, But it also involves uh, increased access to Canada's dairy market uh, and its wine. Uh, It increases uh, auto part production in uh, North American factories and uh, 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 tinkers with the uh, labor wages there to make sure that uh, wages uh, have to be above $16 uh, per hour. Uh, And there's nothing in the deal that would prevent future aluminum and steel tariffs. And so, uh, again, the, the basic infrastructure of NAFTA is intact. And so President Trump is going to go around and say, you know, this is the best trade deal ever. They, he made a deal no one else could make. And uh, he completely revamped everything. And just now, no, your opinion, but it doesn't seem like that's quite what happened here. But I also don't want to downplay the significance of, once again, Trump entering a negotiation uh, getting some important sort of concessions and some wins and ending up in a place where, again, like the EU deal, uh, the EU left that negotiation happy. U.S. was happy. And it looks like uh, this is going to be another one of those scenarios where with all the conflict and all the hot rhetoric, uh, U.S., Mexico and Canada are all leaving the table happy. 
Yeah, I, I would say uh, I agree with you. Uh, um, it's significant. I mean, it it is fairly significant. It, it's not a complete change where things are just turned upside down, which I'm not sure that was necessary. But I do think uh, Trump got some concessions that people weren't necessarily expecting him to get. And he got them through a very heavy handed uh, strategy. And in some respects, that paid off. Uh, so I, let me back us up just a little bit to give people some background about uh, just this whole issue. So what we had in place before was the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was a 1994 treaty uh, between the U.S., uh, Mexico and Canada to remove tariffs between the three of them. Now, remember, and we talked about tariffs, man, maybe a couple months ago in depth. Uh, so go back to one of our uh, probably a few months ago. Go back if you want to learn a little bit about tariffs. Um, but but just to just in sum. Uh, a tariff is a tax on imported goods. So, for example, if the U.S. sends goods to Mexico and they put a tax on those goods, that is a tariff. Obviously, countries want to avoid having other countries put tariffs on them. Tariffs are used as punishment. There are all kind of reasons that people use tariffs. You can use them in trade wars or whatever. But usually another country is not going to be happy when you put a tariff on their goods. And that's what NAFTA was trying to address. Now, as with any big policy, because this this policy had pretty big implications, it had its disadvantages and it had its advantages. Critics would say that the agreement, number one, which is a pretty big deal, lowered wages for uh, for manufacturing jobs in America, that it lowered those wages for American workers, which I think most people would say is not a good thing. Um, And that it also sent manufacturing jobs to Mexico where they had lower standards as far as labor. Right. So either it's cutting the wages here or actually just sending those jobs to Mexico. That's what critics would say. Supporters of NAFTA would point out that gas prices in the U.S. actually went down with NAFTA Um, and also food prices because we were getting food from Mexico and other places went down as well because you didn't see the tariffs on the on that food. So they would say, well, that's hopeful to the American worker and just American families in general. Either way, as uh, Michael pointed out, NAFTA is no more. Uh, After going back and forth for almost a year, uh, U.S., Canada and Mexico have agreed to a revised deal. That revised deal, again, is called the United States, Mexico, Canada, Canada Agreement, a very creative name. Um, But uh, now what we're now what we see is that now this well, let me put it this way. This we have a new agreement or a a revised agreement is probably the best way to put it. But it will not start immediately. Um, but all the country, all three countries have to get it through their legislatures. Now, there's not expected to be too much of a problem with that, but it could take months. Um, so a lot of this is actually going to go to into effect in 2020. And so when it goes into effect in 2020, uh, one thing that that uh, was mentioned by Michael, imported cars will not have tariffs on them. So if a, if a car is imported and 75% of the components of that car are made in the U.S., Mexico, or Canada, there will not be any tariffs on that car. Um, Many of the workers, and here's another uh, part of it, is that many of the workers, most of the workers who worked on that car must have made $16 an hour or more. Now, this is pretty big, and I would love to hear what somebody like Bernie Sanders would say, because this is an area where potentially a Donald Trump and a Bernie Sanders could agree. But they're saying unless the workers made $16 an hour working on that car, then you're going to get hit with the tariffs. Right. Um, and, and the $16 an hour also, let me say, is three times more 
than uh, Mexican auto workers make. So that's a big deal for Canada, uh, for uh, Mexico. Um, another thing that uh, hasn't been mentioned yet was that Canada in this deal will open up its milk market to the U.S. So before Canada was Canada was very protectionist, meaning they put tariffs on other countries when it came to milk because they were trying to protect their own the farmers in their country. And so now one of the big things that that uh, Trump was pushing was to make sure that they opened up that market and lowered the tariffs so that Americans could actually be a part of that market. So which should help American dairy farmers. That should be interesting. Um, the steel tariffs. Now, one of the things that Trudeau was very serious about, who is the leader of Canada, was he wanted the steel tariffs removed off of Canada and Trump refused to do that. So the steel tariffs are still there. Um, and that's probably a somewhat tough for, for Canada to swallow. But that's where this ended up. Something else that Democrats, I think, could get with and see some uh, uh, see, see something good about is that there are increased labor and environmental standards that come along with this agreement. Uh, a lot of this goes somewhat against Mexico because they have lower standards or no standards at all. So wh- whether it's in regards to the cars they're driving, how much they're paying their workers, you have environmental standards, environmental regulation and labor and labor regulations that are in place that weren't in place before. The other thing I'll mention before I, I let this go is that we found out earlier this week or I guess at the end of last week that the U.S. economy grew. in the second quarter of 2018. That's a pretty big deal. It could have an impact on the midterms. We'll just have to see. Yeah, that's a, that's a great recap. This is, and this is, as you said, all going to have political implications. uh, But the, you know, there are concrete uh, economic impacts that will be felt when this deal is put in place. And, uh, there, there are some some real wins in it that, that have to be acknowledged. And uh, like you said, just I'm, I'm interested to see how the congressional debate plays out on this. Uh, one would think, you know, sort of as you alluded to, that, that this is just a deal that for many reasons uh, on both sides of the aisle, they just want to get it done and get it passed quietly. But it will be interesting to see if. Uh, it becomes a subject of, you know, a, a conflict driven to debate uh, just because of the season we're in. Uh, uh, I believe from what I've been reading that the, the deal, uh, if it is to be finalized, will, will be finalized, uh, agreed to by the end of November. But we'll we'll keep folks posted on that. Uh, all right. Well, we're, we're basically at the at the end of this episode. Thanks for hanging with us. We thought it was important to uh, cover in depth uh, what has been the subject of so much of the conversation, deservedly so, uh, since our last episode. And we hope that uh, y'all found that to be a fruitful conversation. And then, of course, we always want to bring you uh, top level uh, policy accomplishments and and uh, and news so that you know what's going on. Uh, Justin, do you have any closing thoughts for this week's episode? Yeah, I would just say this again, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Make sure you go to fourthdistrict.com and check out the podcast there. But if you're on iTunes, make sure that you subscribe, make sure that you give us a rating and leave a comment, man. Tell, tell, so people know how, how you feel about this and spread it out to your friends. We're trying to grow this podcast. We're trying to make sure that it's consistent, that we can give you as much content as possible. And we need your help to do that. So we very much appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Thanks, y'all. Have have a good week. Keep your heads about you. Uh, love one another. Take care of one another. And we'll see you next week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. In the favelas and slums, the ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.